0: Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly.
1: This week, as Australians prepare to vote in federal elections on the 21st of May, we explore how the country's political landscape is shifting and why it's not looking good for Prime Minister
2: Scott Morrison. He really has lost the trust and confidence of many voters. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening
1: to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Dan, there's something pretty remarkable about the way Australian general elections happen. Oh, and what is that? Well, Australians have to vote. It's been compulsory for them to turn out at the polling booths since 1924, nearly 100 years.
0: Compulsory voting Uh, in the United States where it's always like, get out the vote, get out the vote, because we have like abysmal turnout. But I really don't know if I think that's a good thing or a bad thing are there any other countries that do this
1: well there are not very many australia is just one of over 20 other countries in the world that do compel people to vote there are a couple of others in south america including brazil bolivia and peru and then a couple in europe belgium and luxembourg so it's not alone but it is definitely an outlier
0: Okay, so what happens if you don't fulfill your compulsory democratic duty?
1: Well, if you don't have a reasonable excuse, you get fined. So it's 20 Australian dollars for a first offence. That's about 14 US dollars. So it's not a huge amount, but it's not nothing.
0: So the next Australian election is coming up in just a few days. Uh, Gemma, what's on the line here?
1: Well, the centre-right has been in power in Australia under various prime ministers for nearly a decade. But as I've been finding out, that could be about to change. Welcome, Michelle, to the Conversation Weekly podcast. Um, First of all, can I get you to just introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us who you are and and your role, please?
2: Hi, I'm Michelle Grattan, and I'm the uh, political correspondent for The Conversation here in Canberra, and also a professorial fellow at the University of Canberra.
1: And it's great to be with you uh, today, Michelle, just a, a couple of days ahead of the Australian federal elections, which are on the 21st of May. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison of the Liberal Party, uh, which is the centre-right party in Australia, is up for re-election for the second time since he became Prime Minister in 2018. So can you tell us, first of all, how popular is is Morrison, the Prime Minister, going into these elections?
2: He's not popular at all. And that's one of the government's central problems. He really has lost the trust and confidence of many voters that's happened over the term, starting with the bushfires of 2019, 20. Uh, still us, even though we were very well prepared. There were over 200 firefighters here. He somewhere. went on holidays to Hawaii and uh, people were uh, really very disillusioned by the way he handled that. He had, uh, in one interview, tried to justify it by saying, I don't hold a hose, mate. I I know Australians understand this and they'll be pleased I'm coming back, I'm sure, but um, they know that, uh, you know, I I don't hold a hose, mate, and I I don't sit in the control room. Since then, really, apart from a a spike in trust and confidence during the pandemic or, or the earlier part of the handling of the pandemic, he has declined in terms of popularity and people's trust in him. There have been leaked texts from some on his own side of politics. In one case, a premier saying he was a horrible man. In another case, a colleague saying he was a liar. And, of course, we had that spectacular footage of the French president saying essentially, that he'd been lied to by Scott Morrison over the breaking of the uh, submarine contract with France. The accusations have been flying in Rome as the French president says Prime Minister Scott Morrison lied about the scrapped subs deal.
0: When we have respect, you have to be true and you have to behave in line and consistently with
1: this value. Do you think he lied to you? I don't think. I know. Okay, so he's got a real trust problem
2: absolutely a trust problem.
1: And Morrison leads the Liberal National Coalition government. So tell us about this alliance and the direction it's taken Australia since it came to power nearly a decade ago back in 2013.
2: Well, it's a centre-right alliance. The nationals are the minority party, they're rural and regionally based, but the majority of the government is uh, uh, the Liberal Party and What's happened is that in recent years the Liberal Party has been pitched by its leaders towards uh, more tradie voters rather than the solid middle class, professional class voters that uh, supported it some years ago. What do you mean by tradie? Do you mean traditional? No, I mean people in the outer suburbs who are tradesmen or in uh, jobs like trades jobs, uh, I suppose upper working class, lower middle class voters, aspirational voters in uh, many cases, and also voters in ethnic communities. So you said that he's pitched to those
1: people. So what direction has that taken the the party?
2: Well, it's taken the party, I, I think, in in a direction that uh, is more populist probably than uh, in earlier generations and in that sense it's a bit uh, in sync with what's happened in other Western democracies although it hasn't gone to the extremes that we saw for example in the United States. So what you're saying is that the Liberals have
1: had a shift in their support base in recent years?
2: I guess it was always a mix, but what has happened is that the more populist appeal to the outer suburban voters has increased and that has taken them away from this uh, more small-l liberal base that was more important in previous times. But I should stress that the Liberal Party has been and has boasted of being a broad church, including conservatives, big C conservatives and small L liberals. And there's always, uh, in recent times, been a bit of a struggle between those groups. Now, Scott Morrison is really not ideological. He is a pragmatist, but he is rejecting, I guess, to an extent, the small liberal tradition within the party.
1: Let's turn from, from Morrison and the Liberals now to his, his main opponent, which is uh, the Labour Party, led in this election by Anthony Albanese. So give us a bit of history of Australia's Labour Party and, and where they sit on the political spectrum.
2: The Labour Party is also a, a a broad church, as it were, from the right of the party to the left. The left has become less dominant in ideological terms uh, in recent years. Uh, The Labor Party, of course, has a formal link with the trade union movement, but again, the trade unions have also become less important over recent decades because a smaller proportion of workers uh, is now unionised than uh, once was the case. The Labor Party is it led in this election, as you mentioned, by Anthony Albanese. He is uh, traditionally from the left and in his youth was quite a, a left firebrand, but now he's very pragmatic, he's uh, very uh, centrist and he's appealing uh, on a, a platform which is small target because the last election in 2019, Labor had a a big agenda and that essentially frightened the electorate. Also had an unpopular leader in Bill Shorten and it lost an election that everybody thought it would win.
0: Friends, I am disappointed by tonight's results. But I am not disappointed for me. I'm disappointed for people who depend upon Labor, but I'm proud that we argued what was right, not what
1: was easy.
2: So Anthony Albanese has very much learnt that lesson and he is saying he'll bring the community together and he will be looking to have workers and business cooperating towards the, the good of the country. And Albanese,
1: compared to Morrison, what are his popularity ratings and his levels of trust like amongst the electorate?
2: Well, levels of trust in general with politicians are pretty bad at the moment. But I think in terms of Albanese, he is not particularly popular. And one of his problems has been that people, even though he's been around for ages and was a senior figure in the uh, Labor government a decade ago, people really haven't known much about him. And that's been a challenge in this campaign. However, compared to Bill Shorten, who was very unpopular, people are not against Anthony Albanese. So they are willing to uh, think positively about him as an alternative to Scott Morrison.
1: Mm. And you mentioned that the Labour Party has traditionally been a broad church, but what kinds of issues are their traditional supporters most concerned with?
2: Well, like the Liberal Party, the support base of Labour has changed and is changing. And essentially, in recent decades, it's had two constituencies. Uh, One is uh, that outer suburban area that uh, the Liberals are now competing strongly in, the the working class and, and lower middle class, if you want to put it in those terms, the other is the uh, more progressive professional people, uh, those who are deserting the Liberal Party and are uh, looking to issues like climate change and uh, integrity and so on. Now, that's always been a bit of a tension in, in the Labor Party in, in recent times, but now you are seeing them more and more, I think, getting support from some of those professional people and perhaps having more of a a struggle in uh, some of the suburban areas. Also, you've got another batch of uh, voters in the the north of the country in the resource areas, in areas that produce uh, coal in particular, who were put off by Labor's climate policy in uh, the last election and uh, Labor has been trying to balance climate uh, issues, energy issues between its progressive base and those sorts of traditional mining seats. The Conservative parties are having the same juggling act in this election. Mm. That's that's really interesting, and
1: I wondered if we could just dig down a little bit more into these demographic fault lines of, of Australian politics. Because you mentioned there the suburban question and 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 the people on kind of the outskirts of cities, but are there also kind of rural urban divides and kind of young old divides and where people vote?
2: Uh, There are city and and, uh, country and regional divides and I mentioned the uh, nationals and, of course, they operate in the regions and uh, in the rural areas. Uh, They tend to be uh, more conservative areas but the nationals are also a pretty pragmatic party and uh, they got quite a, a lot of funding when Scott Morrison thought it was necessary to have Australia sign up to the net zero 2050 target. In an
0: historic decision, the Nationals have agreed to a net zero emissions target by 2050.
2: It was hard to get the Nationals on board for that target, and the way he did it was to agree to uh, really a very large pot of money, which has been tossed around in this campaign for various projects in the regional and uh, the rural areas. Now, in terms of age demographics, the older voters are more conservative, and Scott Morrison will really need them in this election. But women are particularly important also in this election. Uh, we've had uh, various scandals in Parliament House and uh, the exposés of bad behaviour in Parliament House. Allegations
0: of rape in the Australian Parliament have resulted in mass demonstrations across the country. Thousands have rallied against misogyny and workplace cultures that are dangerous to women.
2: Which has been seen as a somewhat uh, unsafe workplace for women employees, that has been quite difficult for Scott Morrison to handle, and and he really has not looked all that good in the responses he's given. I particularly want to acknowledge Ms. Brittany Higgins, whose experience, and more importantly, courage, is the reason why we are all here today. I am sorry, we are sorry, for the terrible things that took place here. More generally, I think that uh, he has just gone down badly with women voters in the electorate. He's got a very blokey style and that was rather cultivated at the last election. That's caught up with him. And you've been writing about
1: the challenge from some of these independent candidates, these teal candidates, which is this bluey-green colour, which I think are tying together all their election campaign materials. Tell us a bit more about them. I know they're mainly women and they're mainly kind of urban um, professionals, but tell us why they're standing and why they stand out in this election.
2: I think this goes back to the changes uh, in the Liberal Party and they're a sort of a breakaway to the left of the Liberal Party, not not Labor, but uh, the sort of people that a generation ago would have been in the Liberal Party and now just see the Liberal Party as uh, not progressive enough on issues like climate. They are particularly concerned with climate. They're getting uh, funding uh, to a considerable degree from uh, a big fund called Climate 200. And uh, they're also, of course, picking up on this feeling, uh, this antagonism that uh, many women voters have towards Scott Morrison. So I think that will bring them some support. They're running in these... uh, traditionally solid Liberal city seats. In every mainland state, independents are mounting serious challenges in inner-suburban Liberal seats that have long been considered safe. And they are really pressing the incumbents in those seats hard in terms of votes.
0: The race for the federal seat of Kuyong is underway in Melbourne with climate-focused independent candidate ready to take on current MP, Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. Dr Monique Ryan is one of several contenders, supported by Climate 200, who are hoping to win high-profile coalition-held seats.
2: One of those incumbents is uh, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, who's also Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party. Now, several of these Liberal MPs are under serious threat, including Frydenberg, But it's very hard to know whether, in fact, any will in the end get up. You could have a situation where they run the incumbents close but none get up. Or, on the other hand, you could have a situation where two, even three, end up on the crossbench. No one quite knows because uh, individual seat polling is quite unreliable.
1: Is this quite an unusual situation for Australian politics to have this block of independent candidates who are challenging incumbents like this?
2: Yes, it is. It's certainly in the lower house. It's been a different situation historically in the Senate. But uh, we've had independents in the lower house and and there are several crossbenchers at the moment. But this sort of movement is something that's new and uh, has really... Been a sort of um, sub story of this whole election. So what you've got is the the government facing the Labor opposition, which is uh, of course threatening its hold on government, but also trying to deal with these uh, teal people as well. Mm. So do you think these challenges
1: are a signal of a wider shift in Australian politics, or is it a kind of a, a we have to wait and see what happens on the 21st?
2: We do have to wait and see what happens, but I think that they represent this uh, changing uh, party map that we were talking about before. Now, if they all fail, uh, maybe the steam will go out of that uh, to an extent, but if uh, a couple get into Parliament, then uh, I think that uh, that will consolidate some of the changes.
0: We're taking a quick pause here. This is the Conversation Weekly 66th episode, and we are looking for your feedback.
1: Whether you listen every week or this is your first ever episode, we'd love to hear what you think about the show. We're doing a short listener survey and we've put a link to it in the show notes. It shouldn't take you more than about five minutes to complete it. And we'd be really grateful if you could. Thank you. And now back to the episode. Okay, I want to turn now to speak a bit more broadly about what the main issues in this campaign have been, um, and particularly as the leaders have come head-to-head in debates on on television. So how would you characterise the main campaign issues?
2: From the government's point of view, it's running on economic management. It says that uh, it got Australia through COVID in, in good shape in a health sense and in an economic sense. Of course, our economy has bounced back Well, and it's stressing that to change to Albanese would be a risk. That uh, despite being uh, a senior figure in uh, the Labor government, he didn't hold an economic portfolio, and uh, that it's no time to uh, endanger the recovery that Australia is um, undergoing. From Labor's point of view, it's concentrating on issues uh, around cost of living, around Scott Morrison's character and uh, I guess it's arguing uh, an it's time factor too, that this government has been in. It might be uh, only the the second uh, election for Scott Morrison but the government itself has been in since 2013 and that uh, We need to build back better, as Leva says, now that we're moving to the post-COVID situation.
1: In the opening stages of the election campaign in, in late April, the Solomon Islands, which are around 200 kilometers northeast of Australia, signed a security pact with China.
2: The well, Solomon Islands has confirmed it is creating a partnership with China. A policing deal has already been signed with another on military cooperation due for consideration by the cabinet. this could possibly see China base its warships in the Pacific. Tell me what impact
1: that had um, on the debates about Australia's role in the Indo-Pacific and its relationship with China.
2: Well, this has been coming for a while, but the formalisation of this pact really has had a bit of a a shock effect in Australia because there is a lot of worry and preoccupation with the whole China threat. And the the Chinese have been more and more assertive, uh, generally, but also anxious to get whatever foothold they can in the Pacific and in some of these uh, small countries. And so when this came to to light in the, in the campaign, the opposition was very critical of the government for not being able to head off this pact. I think to an extent that criticism was probably uh, overblown and a bit unreasonable because I don't think any Australian government could have done much to stop it. The leader of the Solomons was uh, very anxious for this deal and I think it was just going to be a fait accompli, whoever was in power. But nevertheless, uh, it did undermine the government's attempt to say it was the best manager of Uh, national security issues uh, because obviously it had been unable to manage that one Mm. and
1: eastern australia in particular has been suffering from some devastating floods um in in recent months particularly in new south wales and, and queensland
2: there are flood warnings for rivers across the southeast Pylons wobbled in the Brisbane River, which is rising once again. The waterline creeping closer to venues that went under just three months ago. Sydney
0: is in the grip of a new flooding emergency tonight. A relentless day of rain has caused extraordinary flooding on the northern beaches.
1: How much has climate change been a feature of this election and and the way people are talking about it?
2: Climate change in the last election was uh, an issue where the parties were sharply differentiated and labor was put on the back foot because it didn't have a, a policy that was fully costed and the coalition was able really to score points against it but this election the labor was very careful that its policy uh, had all the the i's dotted the t's crossed and the coalition had Embrace the, the 2050 target. So they'd move closer together. In the actual campaign, the main parties haven't been that anxious to bring the climate issue to the fore. We haven't seen as much discussion of it as we might have expected. However, uh, the Teal candidates have certainly played it up very strongly, and for many voters, climate change surveys show is a really important issue. So you you have had this contradiction to an extent that we're we're not talking about it so much except in the the teal seats. And yet we do know that Australians think it's a very central issue in their uh, worry about uh, where the country's going and what things are important to them.
1: Why are the parties reluctant to talk about it?
2: It's not really entirely clear. I I think that uh, they just think gains are to be made on other issues uh, in the central debate of the election.
1: We're just a few days away from the vote now. How likely do you think it is that no party or alliance will get a majority of the 151 seats in the House of Representatives, which would leave Australia with what's called a hung parliament?
2: If you look at the opinion polls, Labour has had a solid lead for some time and as we speak it hasn't changed over these weeks of the campaign. Of course you never know because the polls can change in the very last days. So just looking at those numbers Labour would be on course for majority government. However people all through have been really cautious about predicting uh, partly because this whole electoral map is is quite confused at the moment with the teal seats and regional differences. Queensland, for, for example, is very strong for the, the coalition. So I think there is a feeling that uh, it could be a hung parliament and I think a hung parliament is probably the best that most commentators think the coalition could get. But it does vary a bit um, from week to week as to whether people think it'll be a majority Labor government or uh, a minority government of some sort. And also, this last week, with Scott Morrison making housing affordability uh, an issue with uh, a new policy, there is the question of whether that could change things to a degree. I doubt that it could change them much but it's always unpredictable. Um, finally a little bit of a cheeky question
1: here why should the rest of the world care about this Australian election what's special about this one and why should the rest of the world care?
2: I think the rest of the world should care because what we've seen in recent times in western democracies really is uh, a problem of, of lack of trust, uh people being turned off uh, the whole democratic system and, and uh, disillusioned with politics, critical of leaders. So I think all elections in the big democratic systems are important and uh, they, they all should be watched for their features, for uh, whether the uh, pressures on our democracy are Getting worse, uh, what sort of reforms can be made to engage people better and to improve the democratic system? So uh, we're sort of, uh, as it were, all in it together in the big democracies. Mm. Well, thank you so much,
1: Michelle, for sharing your insights with us. Um, I know you run your own podcast, Politics with Michelle Grattan, and I'm sure you'll be following the next few days and the results very carefully. So, well, anybody who wants to listen to that should to uh, search for Politics with Michelle Grattan on, on wherever they get their podcasts. Um, thank you very much, Michelle, for, for coming on. Great at all.
0: If you're looking for more analysis of the Australian election, check out Below the Line, a podcast that's a collaboration between The Conversation and La Trobe University in Melbourne. Features political scientists discussing the election. Just search for Below the Line wherever you get your podcasts.
1: That's it for this week. Thanks for this episode. Go to Ellen Duffy, Amanda Dunn and Stephen Kahn, to Alice Mason for our social media and to Soraya Nandi for help with our transcripts.
0: You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. And don't forget, you can sign up for our newsletter. Just click the link in the show notes.
1: And also please complete our listener survey if you can. You can find a link to that in the show notes too. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sahl.
0: I'm Dan Marino. Thank you for listening.